Brainwaves, hear the world differently, bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital Radio and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kaylin, and before we get started, I would like to begin by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land in which I'm coming to you from today. And this is land where we tell our stories at Brainwaves and land where stories have been told by the traditional owners here for many years before us. I would also like to pay my respects to the Elders past, present and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening in today. So if you listened to Brainwaves last week, you'd know that this is part two in our series on the Victorian Royal Commission um, and mental health reform. So if you missed it, um, I'll be sure to put in a link in today's show notes or you can find it on the 3CR website. So last week we spoke to the wonderful Cindy Smith, the CEO of the Australian Association of Social Workers, and Cindy talked to us about the AASW's thoughts about the recommendations from the Commission, um, and as well as her thoughts on other issues that relate to mental health reform. But this week we have uh, the absolute pleasure to speak with Ingrid Ozel's AM. Now Ingrid is an active workplace community mental health and suicide prevention life experience advocate and educator, and peer support co-design and research consultant of 20 years with many other working roles within the mental health and health sector. Um, Ingrid is the founding director of Mental Health at Work um, and I'll provide links into today's show for that information as well. And she's also contributed to mental health policy reform without the whole of Australia. Ingrid is currently working with the Suicide Prevention Australia and has made many submissions to the Royal Commission as well as other commissions um, as both an individual and as someone who works within the sector. And today she's here to talk to us about those submissions that she's made as well as her overall view of mental health reform. Welcome to Brainwaves, Ingrid. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good, how are you? It's lovely to have you. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you for coming on the show. Now, aside from everything that I've mentioned, you know, just now in your introduction, can you tell our listeners a bit about your lived experience with mental health challenges? I'm going to turn the word around and say life experience. Perfect. <laughs> a life experience now. So my life experience with mental health issues and suicidality it feels like it's been around me forever. Mm. Um, I've lived with it since I was a kid. Um, my mum was suicidal and was managing what they call manic depression, now bipolar disorder. So she was in and out of hospital. Um, and I was told, well, you know, mum's got bad nerves, so you've got to be quiet and gentle and, you know, tippy-toe. Wow. It was very much a secret. You didn't talk about it. Yeah. And then I recall that I started having my own suicidal thoughts and severe anxiety when I was about seven. And again, it was something you didn't damage it to a soul. And I knew you, you just didn't talk about it. I couldn't go to anybody. Um, and as I got older, the fear was that it was amazing. Mum actually got out of these places. And I didn't know why. I just knew that it was really, wow, she actually got out. Mm. And, I, and I only understood that later. 
as I was getting older and I came from a very dysfunctional, broken family, I lived with my grandparents. I was very blessed to have beautiful grandparents um, from both sides of my family and an aunt and an uncle who, yeah, I just thought the world of. Oh, that's good. Yeah. My mum and dad divorced when I was very, very young and it was a mess. Um, and as I said, my mum was in and out of clinics and wards. Um, and then she remarried, and that was a disaster. Yeah. Another person she married who was very troubled. Um, and I should add in that I've got a um, Latvian German background. So my family were Europeans. I'm first uh, generation Australian. And so there's an example to me of intergenerational trauma because my grandparents left Latvia in 1959, uh, 1949 after the Second World War and they were so traumatised clearly between what they were experiencing and coming to a strange place and starting again. And um, so I came from a space where, to me, you pick a mental health issue or a challenge and I feel like we've got Got it. it. Yeah, I've had a binge eating disorder. I've got a cousin who's had an um, anorexia. I've got the alcoholics in the family, the gamblers. Um, we've been touched by bipolar. We've been touched by psychosis. Yeah, it just seems like there's just been such a blur of dysfunctional coping with life. Mm. And that's the thing, isn't it? That that coping, I think when we do suffer trauma and there's that histor- historical trauma there as well, often a lot of the things that we do have as mental health challenges can often be co- ways of coping through that trauma. Yeah, and through the only ways that you know how. That's and right. We didn't know what we didn't know then and we still, you still try, and I'm thinking as a parent because as a parent I've had a young young child adult now who's had their psychiatric history and it's really been amazing to see the the trajectory of a family that's been so touched by trauma and trauma and you know some people say we're we're prone to drama but reality you know it's just been we've been in one of those situations where trauma has followed us and some of us have tried to be more constructive in how we've dealt with it and others haven't known how to deal with it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, it's a strong sort of um, pattern that seems to happen with trauma. Like you have the, the initial trauma and then you have the, all of the rest of it come down and I feel like with every generation sometimes there is that little bit of leftover that goes to the next and whether it's hereditary or whether it's to do with, you know, the experiences that you've had in your own life, it still seems to impact. And, and it's interesting because I look back on even my family and sometimes, you know, you think about, oh, this person was a really angry person or this person was a really, you know, dramatic person. But often you look back and you go, oh, hang on, no, maybe I think they, have, they might have had some anxiety there. And I think this person, do you, do you find yourself doing that? Yeah. Now that I know more and over the years as I've learned more about the human condition, it, it makes sense. And I've now walked, you know, I've even walked the justice system. I've walked in so many different ways. And to me now, when I see something happen, my first question is what triggered the person to do what they did, whether it was a violent act, whether it was um, whatever they did in their behaviour that we may or may not like. We might Mm. hate behaviour. What got them there? Yeah. And 
it's not about saying, look, I'm going to condone the behaviour or I think it's great or whatever. I hate the behaviour, but I love the person. That's right. Yep. And then when does rehabilitation and support and love come in? And then we wonder why our suicide rates are so high when people aren't supported or aren't forgiven. Um, and we, and understandably, there are times when relationships are toxic. They can mm. trigger our mental health um, and trigger people. And I've, I've triggered people. I know I'm a trigger to family members. They're a trigger to me. And sometimes the kindest thing we can do for each other is to walk away mm-hmm. from each other from a distance. Does it make us bad people? It just sometimes is the way it is, as painful as it is. That's right. And I think if we don't, um, you know, one of my favourite favorite sayings is to be curious in, in all these situations, is to, yeah. to come into it from a place of love and a place of curiosity. And sometimes people don't get the opportunity to change, you know. And then there's, there's people that do get the opportunity and they just can't. For whatever reason, they just can't. And that's okay too. But like you said, you know, I'm, I'm a strong believer in walking away when you need to as well. And also that sense of for some people, then you've got an opportunity to choose wellness. And mm-hmm. I use carefully because how many times haven't I heard that, oh, you can switch your depression or trauma on and off. Why haven't you got over it? You had that happen to you when you were a kid. You're an adult now. Surely you yeah. can do the logic. And maybe if you just go for a walk, you'll feel better. <laughs> you'll be right. <laughs> I did some exercise and I'll fix you in no time. I mean, we know that all those things are beneficial. But in some parts, in some journeys of your life, for whatever reason. That's right. And sometimes it's part of the whole picture, not just we go for one walk and then suddenly you're fine. Sometimes there's a lot more involved in that as well. And, yes, no, I do love that. Just get over it. You'll be fine. Or think happy thoughts. Be positive. (sighs) See, now (laughs) I've relabeled that. Toxic positivity. Yes, I agree with you completely. I have to say now I am on the toxic positivity bandwagon because sometimes that then leads to invalidation and not washing. Yes. Yep. That's right. I wonder why we go down an unhealthy pathway. Yeah. Or people don't want to talk about it or stigma continues. That's why. Exactly. And often the, the most interesting thing about po- toxic positivity, it's never to really benefit the person that they're talking to. It's to benefit themselves because they feel uncomfortable talking about whatever it is or seeing this person in a state of distress. So they're like, well, quick, I need you to fix this because it's yeah. making me feel something. And it's also because we do want to come from a place of helping. Mm-hmm. We, don't like we don't like sitting with someone, just sitting and being. Or even holding someone who's sobbing or crying. It's easier to walk away and leave them cry on their own, which I actually don't get how that's easier to do. But me, you know, I can see someone's begging for a hug um, and I'm going to hug (laughs) because I'm... Any excuse for a hug and I'm in there. Um, But it's that sense of fear we fear each other we fear our humanity Mm -hmm. absolutely now you touched a bit about suicide prevention just before so as part of your work you often talk about it so suicide prevention to me sounds pretty self-explanatory but can you tell it what it means to you oh wow it means so many things um because of my lived experience and life experience of suicide and suicidal behavior um 
And having been in the mental health world for 20 years, I know that when I first started talking about mental health and suicide, suicide prevention, it was a no-go zone because of the stigma. I know I paid a huge price. I had family members walk away because they were ashamed I was talking about it. But the more I experienced it, not only as my perspective, as in me, but watching my loved ones, watching my parent, my child, other people's children, seeing it just getting bigger and bigger than me, um, I became obsessed with it. And I have to say, at one point, I was quite manic and I enrolled in two degrees. Wow. <laughs> I think, why, how? But there was a reason. There was a very strange reason within all of that hypervigilance because I was constantly waiting for tragedy. You know, every morning I'd go to the staircase and be calling out for my child and feeling that, oh, my gosh, what if, what if they don't say hello back? Hello, and I'm not getting a response. Hello, I'm not getting a response. Do I go up there or do I not go up there? And then by the fourth, oh, hi, Mum. I can breathe. We made it through the night. I needed to see hope and optimism. So I did one of one of a, an online degree from University of Hertfordshire in UK, and that's what it brought me. Wow. It brought me the words hope and optimism. And then at the same time, I did a master's in psychology. And people said, why would you do something so morbid? No wonder you've got a kid that's suicidal. And I had even doctors telling me, you've got it all around you, so no wonder they're suicidal. Well, actually, then there'd be a lot of sick people out there because there are a lot of doctors with children. Yep. <laughs> no, it's like, let's be commonsensical here. And so when I did that, I have to say, it was so empowering because I was facing my enemy with both of them and I struggled. My cognition was really impaired. I manage bipolar disorder. And so my brain really, when it's when it's in a bad space, it goes like 100 miles an hour, but not on a, when I'm high, it's not a happy high because there's this misconception that at times if you're walking on water and you're manic, that that's what you're going to I actually go the other way. I feel very agitated, very angry. I'm on hyper alert, like that deer stunned with lights in her eyes. And so I did this as a way of trying to face my fears and think, I've got to get it. And I did. I got obsessed with I have to find out an answer to the unanswerable. And, and did it help? Yeah. Oh, wow. What it helped me with was the more you know, the more you don't know. It's human life. Mm. Death is a part of life. And suicide prevention to me is a way of us bringing a new conversation to the table about a broader issue, about death. We are not comfortable with death and yet it's a natural part of being we are so death adverse we want zero suicide we want zero cardiovascular disease we want zero cancer we want zero COVID. we want zero zeros and do i really want to live to i'm 200 yeah there's that too <laughs> i don't know and i don't mean to be flippant but at the same time i, I at the same token where's there some realism 
Well, hang on, suicide's different to a heart attack. Yes, it is. It's not, it's different to dying from cancer. Mm. Let's not say that's not different. Death is different with every single one of us. Um, and what I realised during COVID, as if I needed any more remembering, was my partner had stopped breathing one night in the middle of the night and I thought I'd lost him. But I was terrified. Yeah. I was still terrified like I was when it was my daughter. I was terrified when it was my mother. I was terrified when it was my cousin. Whatever the health issue, whatever the emergency, whatever the crisis, and I realised, you know, fear is fear. That's right. When we're faced with death, it is scary. Every subject around this, talking about this, is uncomfortable. We've got to accept stuff in life is uncomfortable, acknowledge that some subjects are damn uncomfortable and painful to talk about, it, but it's not an excuse to avoid it. No, that's right. And I did a really fantastic project with Suicide Prevention Australia. Yes, I'm biased, they're my, my employer on one level. Um, but we had the most, or I felt I had the most honoured position. We did what we call journey mapping of people that experienced last year, looking at a few of people on their journey from ideation to attempt and looked at some of the main points that we could extrapolate from interviews and research around what are the most common areas, if there are commonalities, that people have in that journey from ideation to attempt, and what is the potentially community or you and I could do to help so that instead of having the ambulance at the, at the other end, that we can maybe have points along the way. Now, when we organised this, we created every safety bubble that was possible. And I'm very much conscious, whether in the corporate world, government, whatever workplace, the more we can teach each other how to create a safe environment, a safe bubble for every one of us to reach our potential, then that's, that's actually what I'm trying trying to, to educate um, the community about is it doesn't matter whether it's a suicide prevention meeting or a mental health meeting or if it's a board meeting at, up at Woolies, we actually do need to think about each other more in the frame of human human nature that we've all probably been traumatised. And now with COVID, let's just assume we have. Yeah. We don't know what's behind a person's uh, veneer. So with this exercise, we certainly made sure everyone was kept safe. And the conversation was incredible. Mm. We were all uncomfortable. We all were quite nervous and quite uh, anxious about doing this. And so as it turned out, the more we shared and the more we knew we were supported, the more pain came out. But so did the euphoric sense of we can be open and honest wow the narrative changed from not every death is tragic that's powerful that was really powerful and it was a bit confronting to hear someone say but i don't want my death to be tragic all of us die mm. why do we see death or suicide or heart disease or whatever we're going to die from as tragic you know, we're all sad and lost when someone dies at any age. But then when do we celebrate life? And we need to celebrate life. And death is the time to do that. Absolutely. 
whenever the death. And I think that's why I don't get why we are so death adverse. Mm. And it sounds like the work that you're doing within suicide prevention space is about um, recognising death for what it is, not just preventing suicide, but just having that, that larger conversation, which is amazing. It's really slow. Yeah. And no, we're not having those conversations loudly enough or frequently. They're only just starting because only the conversations are suicide are just starting. Mm. And there's still too much stigma. There's still too much discomfort. And that's why with a whole lot of the changes that I know we're going to talk about with the Royal Commission and stuff, that there is a whole lot of change and shift of how we deal and manage people in crisis. And yeah, in crisis. that's so important. So important. And, yeah, on that, um, you did make a submission into the Victorian Mental Health Royal Commission. So I'm assuming that was a big part of your motivation. But, you know, please elaborate on that. And what was the experience like? I came from a variety of different spaces, not only my own life experience as a life as me, but also as a carer, because I know the carer's voice is way too often lost. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, I know we talk a lot about families being the unit of support. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes families can hinder health and well-being. And sometimes health families can contribute to our health and well-being. But there's this tension. And I find that those families who can actually help in health and well-being are often the ones that are brought in to support or be educated or be supported themselves. Uh, yep. And the system breaks. And then you've got the families who possibly should be kept at arm's length and they're dragged in and they're not always the right people to be brought in. And that's why I've, I've been the advocate around give the consumer, the lived experience, the choice of who is their support person or their nominated carer. Because let's not assume it's always going to be family. Yeah. Mind you, as a uh, family member, I've had people who, like in my child's case at 14, they tick the box and, no, we don't want you to know anything, Mum. But I'm their legal guardian and if I'm supposed to be giving them meds, I've got to know something. Um, so it's about finding that, that sort of equilibrium. <laughs> I do need to know the very basics, like what is the diagnosis, if the diagnosis is relevant, but what's the treatment or um, discharge plan or what's the recovery plan look like? How can I help rather than in silence or not being told anything that I could make things worse? Because that's what I grew up with. That's right. I think you, you, there's a very important word you use there, relevant. I need to know what I don't need to know. And I don't want the, the person to feel they have to be their soul to me. Mm. All I want to know is... And I'm one of the lucky ones. I do know how the pharmaceuticals work. I get the, the power of psychotropic medications because I'm on them. But if they are, people are not known, if they don't know this, how's Fred and Mary going to cope out there mm. when they could be psychoeducated, when they could be informed, and yet they're not being informed? Mm. So how do they help their loved one? We're a system. We work together. That's right. Absolutely. Mm. 
Well, that's definitely food for thought. And it's not something that I'd really considered before. So thank you for sharing that. So Ingrid, why do you think that we needed the Royal Commission? I'm going to be blunt and honest. (laughs) At the time, I didn't think we needed it. Still don't, to be honest. Um, I've been around the movement for 20 years. I've lost count at how many reports and focus groups and sessions where people told me their stories and told my colleagues their stories around the country over and over and over and over again. I've been part of launches of things like Not For Service. Uh, I can't even remember when that was. Mm. Um, When this came up, I thought, oh, damn, not another one. More trauma, more reliving. What else? When is this going to be heard? When when is someone actually going to do? I'm tired of us telling our stories. So I have to say I was a cynic, very much so a cynic, and even now I've still got that dose of cynic. <laughs> I think that's healthy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Um, but there's a different sense of cynicism. Now it's more of a hopeful one because in all this time, and even though I was cynical when it was going to be, uh, when it was announced, I still did a truckload of uh, submissions, as you sort of hinted to me before the interview and found out. Um, likewise, the Productivity Commission, I am really good at nagging. And so, you know, even if it's quietly, if it's a little loudly, like in this radio interview, um, <laughs> I try, try and put something out there. Um but I was worried about a lot of people who were really, 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 really not in the spaces to tell their stories and scared that this would do more harm than good. Um, but at the same token, there was a sense of something different in the air. Wow. Something. And I don't know what it was and I didn't know until the day that the report came through. And I have to say, I was live streaming it. I watched it and I went through so many emotions. I cried. Mm. I felt relief. I felt anger. I felt sadness. I felt vindicated. Um, But what I really felt was, oh, God, I wish my mum had had this. I wish my child had this. I wish so-and-so had this. And then maybe it wouldn't have hurt so much. It hurt because of what I've seen it's done to people's lives, the relationships that mental illness and suicide have devastated. And actually, I'm going to go one step further, decimated some people's lives. These are shit issues um, that really hurt and traumatise so when that was released, that day was a really hard day. I was working or trying to work and listening to it and just stopping and listening to the lived experience voices that were so brave and sharing their journeys up there with the commissioners and the fact that they even made the effort to have it at the exhibition buildings. That was amazing. That was huge. And so I have to be honest, I have not been able to read that document yet. Mm. Um, I'm getting snippets and I'm reading summaries and I'm doing bits and pieces, but I feel like I'm already overwhelmed with so much 
going on between the productivity, just so much. And I have to say, I feel really exhausted and tired. COVID's really thrown everybody out of whack. But what I've come away from with that Royal Commission and the 65 recommendations on top of the nine that had already started to be implemented through MHRV was a hope bubble. And maybe that's another reason I don't want to go into too much detail reading. The, the I love that. It's going to stay in my hope bubble. Yeah. Because for me, there is a watershed moment. Something in the air is telling me that finally, finally, our voices, our screaming, our nagging, our knocking the damn parliament door down is going to be listened to. And I want to stay in that hope bubble just in case. I don't want to get disappointed. Mm. And my heart aches saying that to you because I don't want to even dream that all these efforts of tireless work of many, many, many people from not only those that are known with lived experience but those who work in health, those who work in government, those who work anywhere. One in two Australians will experience some form of a mental illness in their lifetime, whether they identify or not. This is about all of us. This That's is about right. humanity. Yeah. So this is a social movement that will probably come to life maybe even after my lifetime. That's how I feel too. And yeah. I don't see that's okay. As long as my kids and your kids and your grandkids, they can see it. If they can live in a stigma-free world where they can say, yeah, I have a mental health vulnerability. Yeah, I've been thinking about suicide. We're not all going to go and bring the ambulance or the police to take them off to prison. Well, okay, I don't mean to be flippant, but in essence, a lot of people have been carried into places as if they were being taken to prison for having an emotional human reaction to situations that have been extreme. And when deinstitutionalisation all happened, and I can't help but go back to that because that's when, you know, before then my my mum and other loved ones had been going through the old system. And I recall that was when I first did try to take my life. And I remember the doctor that I saw in emergency said, I really think you need to go to hospital. Um, and I was terrified. And he said, but why are you so scared? I said, because I think you're going to throw the key away and never let me out. Mm. And he said, no, that's not quite how it works anymore. I said, I don't know that and I don't believe you. Mm. And I was 18 at the time and terrified and thinking that's why I actually wanted to end my life was because I didn't want to go into one of those places. Mm. Um, and I was afraid of my other choice. Yeah. And that sounds weird because it wasn't a choice. No. At that stage, I was in such pain that to me, choice was I don't want to be here. Um, We're just not feeling that pain. Yeah, I just want to stop the pain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At that time, I didn't even think it was choice. Yeah. Even now, I still don't think it's choice. And it's a, it's a word I still get, I still sometimes stumble across because it's conditioned. People say suicidal behaviour is a choice. Well, and that also puts the ownership on the individual rather than the supports that should be available to them in the wider community. So, 
Yeah. And then the word behavior, because it is a behavior. Mm. It's not always going to be a mental illness that's going to cause suicide or that suicide is because of mental illness. Mental illness is a huge risk factor. But at that point, there's still some irrationality. There's still pain, 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 pain that people want to get rid of and don't know how. Yeah. And, and hopefully that bubble that you've spoken about will help with that change. And that's going back to that bubble is let's hope with the changes that are being recommended that we can create a bigger bubble for others. It's just that the bubble's probably going to burst because it's going to take a while and change takes a while. Systems take a while to change. And it's not like we've had a system. And I think I wrote somewhere, it's like we've got a mosaic of tiles <laughs> and pieces. And now we've got to try and change the mosaic to maybe not have so much concrete in between each piece, but bring the pieces together more uh, to rebuild what we have into something that is modern, that is contemporary, that is something we as a community can get our heads and hearts around and not be scared of Mm. and be more willing to get in there early. And so going back to actually one of your earlier questions about prevention is about us being more tolerant and embrace ourselves and each other with vulnerability. Compassion. Exactly. And language and words and actions. And, you know, it's easy to say words in haste without realising the consequences. But we don't know what's behind the person and what they're feeling. And it might be years and years later that it comes out. So we have touched on some of your story today. And as someone who is living with mental illness, What is some advice you could give to our listeners who may share similarities with your story? We're not alone. That's probably the biggest driver is when I've been really in a bad space. I felt alone, like I'm the only person in the whole wide world that feels this disconnect from myself, from life. Um. That aloneness is really painful. And I want other people to know that even if they don't feel valued or loved or feel really small and insignificant, because I have, no, you're not alone. That's why That's why so many of us now are trying to pluck up the courage. And I know my voice still trembles. I feel still sick doing this stuff, even after 20 years. But my hope is that one person listening hears this and feels, okay, someone else gets it. Yeah. No, I think that's 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 super important, and I think in 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 a, in a way that's that hope bubble that that we talked about with the royal commission as well. It's that, you know, we hope that people start to feel heard, and that someone else who might not recognise that they are experiencing challenges themselves, they can go, oh, you know what? I hear that. I see that. I feel that. And I think that's really important. And the yeah. other part to that is this sense of I know that a lot of people say, oh, but others have got it worse let's not invalidate our pain it's not a competition it's not we can't rate anybody else i don't know what your pain level is or joe blow's pain level is we feel what we feel and it's okay um it's okay to acknowledge 
pain. Let's sit with pain. And maybe that's the way when someone is crying, whether they're sobbing or whether they're crying on the inside, let's just learn to sit with discomfort. Let's learn to just sit in silence or what do you need? What can I do to help you feel a little less uncomfortable? Even though I can't feel your pain, I can't walk with you directly because I don't get what you're going through but I just want to be here. If you want a hug, I'll give you one. If you don't want one, you don't have to have one. If you want to watch a movie, let's watch a movie. If not, if you want to bugger off, I'll bugger off. <laughs> it's that asking. Holding, Giving... holding space for someone else. Yeah, I love that word, holding space. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us today, Ingrid. It's been a blast. And as I'm sure you can tell, you and I could probably talk for hours and hours and hours. But You'd I am like going to... <laughs> Me too. I even forgot we're on the radio. <laughs> but before I wrap up today, if someone wants to reach out to you or follow you on social media, how can they do about how can they go about doing that? Okay, here's my nickname on Twitter. I'm at Ingi Oz. On um, Instagram, I'm at Ingi Oz. I'm on LinkedIn. Ingrid Ozols. I can be found under Google. (laughs) I am also Mental Health at Work, which is my consultancy. And um, yeah, I'm I'm around a little bit. You're around a little bit, just a little bit. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. But I do encourage people to touch base. As you can tell, I love talking, but I love listening and I love people. Yeah, I can tell that. You're a beautiful person. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll definitely make sure all the information about things we've talked about is in the show notes today. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. And it's been a joy talking to you, Caitlin. Thank you so much, Ingrid, for coming on the show today and sharing such an important conversation. Please be sure to tune in next week for our last part of the series, which we'll be speaking with CEO um, of Wellways, Laura Collister, about her thoughts from an organisational perspective about the commission and mental health reform. And in the meantime, you can find more of our shows at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or on Spotify, wherever you download your 3CR podcast. And if you have a story or anything you'd like to share with us, please send us some feedback as well um, at brainwaves at wellways.org. We always love hearing from you. And thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe. We'll be back next week. Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR.